All right, so sitting here in my um, very cool and comfy apartment in Lille, um, Aiden and I are here to discuss discuss the breakdown of the Culling Singapore recent results and kind of analyze those leading indicators to better understand how to prepare um, for Pro Tour number two here in Lille, um, as well as give our personal insight on what we've been doing and how we've been preparing for this specific tournament. But Hayden, let's start it off and let's have you talk about the Calling Singapore, which you were actually able to attend. Yeah, just got in from Singapore a few days ago into a nice, it's quite a mild, quite mild here in Singapore, uh, in, uh, in Lille compared to Singapore. No, it's not. I mean, there's, there's no air conditioning anywhere in nah. Lille, which is fun. So currently sweating it out right next to Brendan. <laughs> his apartment it's an awesome apartment it's cool just uh not cool in both terms mm-hmm. um singapore was awesome so great experience just want to first of all give a big congratulations to jason zhang who won on uh, boost dash took it out uh I, re- I guess a bit of a surprise win right like not many people expecting dash to have a weekend coming into uh coming to the event so um you know jason put up a, a really consistent performance to take out the event i think he he finished around like third or fourth in Swiss, so it was was you know locked I think around before <clears throat> the final round, heading into top eight, and took out. Uh, I actually watched his quarterfinals match, so I stood stood right behind him and watched him play against Fi, <clears throat> uh, a Fi player who'd been kind of running the tables all all weekend uh, to take him out, head on to Briar, and then another uh, another Briar. Oh, sorry, that's right, and then a Briar in the final. So <clears throat> big congratulations to great congratulations to Jason. Also, just a super nice guy. Uh, I got to meet him um, a couple of times over the weekend, so. Uh, yeah, awesome dude, and watch him play. The event itself was like really well run as well. So it was at a, a quite a nice convention center hall, um, like kind of near the airport. So a little bit out of Singapore, but in a, in a pretty good spot. And uh, I think it was the it was done by Fable out in Taiwan, was part running the event in conjunction with a couple of stores, I think, in Singapore and with LSS, just really well run. So it was quite a quite a good event. Um, day one was like a little bit slower than you might expect from some events, but then day two was really good. And they had great side events um, and a battle hardened. I think they had 179 players for battle hardened mm. on day two. So a massive battle hardened. It might be the biggest battle hardened, I think, that we've had. So um, maybe not as big as at PT New Jersey, potentially, but massive. I was surprised. I thought they said 90. And they said, no, 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 179. So um, yeah, a lot more players than I expected. Um, I played Viserai for the weekend. So I ended up finishing 7-5 in, in the calling. Um, I think obviously not not the result I wanted to to have, uh, but kind of learned a lot. I think so. Excited to maybe break down some of those learnings from both draft and class constructors, um, and kind of what I sort of learned and what we're I guess because we're taking it as a group, kind of leading into Lil and the things that we've learned and we've talked about this week. Um, maybe just to date stamp it and time stamp it, Brendan. But we're Thursday morning before the pro tour, so in twenty four hours time, we're going to be sitting down for round one of PC number two. Yeah, can't wait for that too. So I definitely have a lot of questions still concerning uh, the Calling Singapore, and we're going to head into that. But before, you know, we're in Lille, we're in France, culinary hub of the world here. So we got we to gotta open that queue and cook it up here. Do you have something for us? Yeah, I definitely want to start with the Commander Cookout question. We can't, uh, we can't disrupt the, uh, the blood of the Commander Cookout. <laughs> we're here to get there in Lille. Sure. A little ratatouille for this one. So uh, I got a question from uh, Trevor from the Discord here, from the Arsenal Pass Discord. If you do want to get your questions in, you can get them into arsenalpassfab at gmail.com. You can uh, drop them in the YouTube comments below. You can tweet at us, uh, or if you are on the Discord, a Patreon Discord, you can drop the question in the Commander Cookout question uh, section. So Trevor says, with the way deck building works in Flesh and Blood, sideboard is included within the 80 cards you present. Many decks will build a core shell of cards, which opens up a lot of possibilities between matchups. It's not unusual for a core to consist of 40 to 50 cards, which is usually vastly different from the 15-card sideboard many of us know from games like Magic the Gathering. 
Due to this, simply finding a list of fab TGG often isn't helpful. It's unclear which cards should actually be chosen in a matchup, nor is it easy to construct a deck and balance the pitch ratios appropriately. What tips or advice would you give to newer players looking to get a better understanding of how decks and sideboards are constructed? So there's a few ways to answer that, I think. And I, I just want to break it down first because I I mean, I think even at this point in uh, in our fab careers, I will look at lists and if they are not <laughs> correctly uh, separated out, like I will also be confused sometimes. Like how many blues are they playing? You know, how many non-attacks, attacks? Like what are they exactly going for here? Um, so yeah, those vanilla lists that you get off of... Um, fabtcg.com that are just kind of straight 80 can be pretty confusing if it's not separated out in terms of like how the decks are built with cores and with the so-and-so sideboards um, and not that traditional 50 card 15 card sideboard that you're used to in magic i know i prefer that the idea behind that is the core is just what your deck wants to do every single time it's the identity of your deck and the rest are sort of tools that come in for each specific matchup um for breaking down the list, Hayden, what is your recommendation? How do you go about it? How do you go about parsing, understanding, and articulating sort of a vanilla 80-card list that you've picked up? And even more, what if it's about what if it's a hero you don't play? Because I know that we even talked about this recently because we want to have Isolator in our gauntlet. We take that 80-card list. How do, we, how do we pick that deck up and start playing it as a gauntlet? How do we learn it? Yeah, if you think about like just permutations of an 80 card list, if you're going to present 60 cards or 60 plus 5 with your equipment and weapon, there's so many different like iterations you could have. And uh, Trevor talks about like ratios and stuff as well. So just looking at a list and trying to decipher what they're doing with, first of all, just the cards they're presenting, but then second of all, like game plan is huge as well. Like we're not even talking about just how you approach a game plan perspective. So uh, I think that's really difficult. And I think there's, um, you know, there's some tools out there in the way that people break down their deck techs and, and things like that. If you're looking for lists that make it a lot easier to digest. Uh, I know we try and do that. <clears throat> we do it differently every time. So you just talked about the kind of one way of, you know, you have a core of your deck, let's say it's 45, 50 cards, and that's the same in every single matchup, never changes. And then 15 to, you know, 10 to 15 cards come in to get you up to 60. That's one way to approach like deck building and looking at a list. The other way you can look at it is just, you know, a lot of redundancy in cards or specific cards for specific matchups, but not really a core, lots of things chop and change. You might just start with like the full 80 and you just like, this is what comes out in each matchup. Um, I think the core is always like a really good way to work if you if you've de built your deck that way because in, in reality I think where we are in the game of Fish and Blood right now you want to be able to do something quite repeatable every game you want to have a really strong sort of proactive strategy I think for the most part and even if you look at it maybe a deck that's a little bit more reactive like a, maybe say a Guardian uh, or something like Icelander you're still going to have a core of your engine of how you want to win the game so that's still going to set out your core so um, I think that way of looking at a core deck and then adding cards in, even if the end when you go and write through your notes, you write out what cards come out, you still have that, that core of your deck at the kind of ethos of what's what's happening. In terms of approaching and looking at a deck, I mean, I would just try and reverse engineer what's happened a lot of the time, and it's not easy. Um, so, you know, maybe I go and look at an 80 card list, and I try and decipher what is the core, or I ask someone, or I try and seek out who that person was that played it, or uh, maybe someone knows what the core could have been, or maybe you can find an experienced person at Locals who has uh, played that same that same hero before and they might be able to decipher what the what the cards are <laughs> in that core um i guess the other one is you know looking at a deck list just often isn't going to help you and you might need to look mm -hmm. at something like uh you know find a primer on youtube find someone who's written an article on, on one of the websites and and break it down from there um there's some great content out there you know not just obviously we've done some stuff with deck text but in deck guides but uh, and we've had guests come on but there's there's lots of other things you could do as well so i think the you just kind of have to get the mind the mind frame if you've come from a different tcg that uh, don't look at it as, you know, 60 plus 15. Look at it as probably a core of a deck 
45 to 50 plus for your sideboard options that come in. Because you only play best one game, right? It's not really a sideboard, it's actually a pre-board. Mm-hmm. Or the other way is to uh, to look at it in terms of the 80 cards and what comes out in each matchup and just work through and go, what cards suck in this matchup? And that's probably going to help you to decide what the person was doing. If you take Icelander and they've got a bunch of, um, you know, uh, defense reactions in there, like against the mirror for Icelander, they're not going to come in, right? So you can already start to decipher things like that. Yeah, or you can maybe just have the first inkling of, you know, a game plan such as what that deck is trying to do with Frost Hacks, and you're like, oh, I probably don't need this for the aggro matchup, right? I've heard this is a specific card that's meant for, you know, some sort of um, sure. kind of final game plan for old him or something like that, right? It's pretty easy to sort of pick that card out. I think this is why, you know, yeah, decks like straight up lists and flesh and blood are just not super valuable all the time, and and it is trying to get the insight behind the pile and get the deck tech, get sort of this deck guide, get this primer does really build the foundation of just being able to pick up and play that deck. Um, Cause even if we, even if you did have a list and a guide on like what cards exactly to put in for each, each mashup, like flesh and blood is just one of those games where you can have dynamic game plans that are, can get quite complicated, right? Especially when you're setting up end game states or something like that. It's like, if that's what your deck is trying to do, no matter if you have the right, the exact 60 cards, if you're the whole core competency of the deck is to build some sort of end game plan, whether it is through something like Frost Tax or, you know, on Kano, you're trying to play to that Aether Wildfire and you're not aware of that, then the deck can sometimes just not function, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that context is key. And yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of discussion and it's one of the things I like about Flesh and Blood is that there has, there's a lot of discourse around sort of how to play the game and everybody's got their own opinion. Yeah, even the same list. And this is not to, I think just this is probably beyond Trevor's question now, but I think it's a really interesting point is that when you look at how to play a deck, you pick up the list, you know, each person's going to play it differently without context of what the, maybe the initial deck was trying to do. Let's take like Viscerai as an example. You have a card like Become the Arcanite, traditionally a really powerful card. In current Viscerai list, it kind of doesn't do much. It literally is a blue pitch card. But, you know, some people might pick up that deck and go, you know, this is the most powerful card in the deck. I'm going to play with the intent of always trying to use this card the best as possible. Um, so I think there's, yeah, you can literally pick it up and play it in different ways. So game plans and the context of those are so much more important than the list. Because if I was to attribute it, I reckon mm-hmm. the list yeah. itself is like worth 10% of the total, I guess, um, value you get out of a, a game plan, a list, uh, a strategy, sideboard notes and, and plan. Like the actual list itself is worth like 10% maybe. Like you, you can't do much with just the list without the context. And I think honestly that's why currently deck builders still get rewarded in this game. People who are good at deck building because they're the ones who are designing these game plans and, and choosing, you know, the minuteness of cards and knowing exactly what they want the list to do. Yeah, there's not a like there's not a lot of silver bullets in flesh and blood. There are some. Um, but yeah, specific hate cards that it's just like, oh, it's win this matchup, I just need to draw this card. It's pretty rare. Um, you'll even find that like if a deck has arcane barrier allocated to it it might not play it in the wizard matchup or something silly like that uh it it can be pretty surprising but yeah i think that we're going beyond the scope of the question but i think it's a good question because i know personally as a player i've struggled with it a lot and you know i've gone to to gone to the fat tcg website to get the new hottest list and i'm just like oh what do i do with this (laughs) well it's usually also slightly incorrect but (laughs) that's another story how how do you how do you break it down and how do you actually use that because you you want the information right you've gone you found the information how do you Mm -hmm. actually use the information right like that's like that's often the hard part how you use the information so um and just on like the last point you talk about like cards you put in or you know whatever like these these you know maybe it's like even as simple as defense reactions they're not Mm -hmm. silver bullets but they come in in these matchups what do you take out 
What's, yeah. what's not in the deck? What's, what's coming to the deck is almost as important as what's being left out of the deck. It could completely change the structure of the deck and you might lose the core game plan. You know, I think about an aggressive deck that puts defense reactions in. That's, you know, that's hurting an aggro plan. So what's actually coming out for those defense reactions? Like, yeah. Like, what's the cost? And it, yeah. It's funny that you're like, they might come in for the Briar, but then they don't come in for the Viscera, and you're like, oh, they're kind of the same thing. What is going on here? Um, but yeah, totally. All right, Hayden, let's jump, let's jump into Singapore because I've got, I've got some questions. You know, you were ground floor on that tournament. First thing I just want to say is the meta that showed up, is it what you expected? Yeah, so I think you've got the metagame breakdown, which you can read off in a second. Um, but first of all, I think my kind of takeaway on day one, walking the table. So I didn't see a metagame breakdown until late day two. Yeah. Um, I knew what the top 16 decks I think were going into day two. And there was just, I want to point that out first of all, that amazing, there was 10 different heroes in the top 16 at the end of day one, which is, is, is crazy. Um, obviously, draft is part of this event. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, maybe just for context, people who don't know about Singapore, Singapore mm -hmm. was a split format calling like Utrecht. So it was uh, six rounds of draft, six rounds of CC. So a pure split format, like we're going to see this weekend in, in, in PT Lil. Um, so it was three rounds draft, day one, then four, uh, four, round, uh, four rounds, five, four rounds constructed, and then it was five rounds on day two. So um, it was really aggressive. The middle was quite aggressive. And I think from what I understand from just talking to some of the locals and, um, you know, the, the the players in that region, be it, you know, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, where a lot of players have come from to play, I think about 70% of the players were, 80% uh, of the players were from the Asia region. Um, that's pretty pretty normal, pretty aggressive metas. So I know we saw a lot of room blades, but maybe you can give us a breakdown of what it actually looked like there. Yeah, so I'll read off the, first, the kind of top few here. So leading, we have Viserai at 17.2%, 17, 17 followed by Briar and Prism, both tied at 11.1%. Close after, I guess, slightly above that is Phi at 11.9%. So kind of all floating around the, the same the same percentage there, Briar, Phi, and Prism. And then closely following up is actually Bravo at 7.8%. Then we have Dorinthia at 5.7%. Um, and Jermai at 3.7, Dash at 4.9. I just want to mention those. There's a, there's some Lexi uh, at 6.6%. The rest of that is kind of just your usual suspects um, in terms of the soup. Icelander 4.5, that's important to mention because it did see some conversion. Um, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> the kind of lowest one I mentioned here was Dash at 4.9%. I'm winning the tournament. Yeah, and there was a couple of dash floating around as well wow. on, on top tables. So um, <clears throat> a good weekend for dash. I think you look at it, 50% of the meta was aggressive decks though. Yeah. Uh, so if I, if I go and extrapolate from when I saw, first saw this, my kind of takeaways and what I saw walking around the tables was, yeah, a bit more aggressive than I thought, less Guardian than I thought. Mm -hmm. I was expecting to see more Guardian, uh, which I think, you know, decks like Ultim would have had a good time this weekend if you dodged, you know, things like Prism. But there wasn't that much Prism. Prism was, you know, just over, combined with Dramaya, yeah. uh, you know, Illusions were what, 17%. It wasn't much floating around in terms of that. So I thought this would be the number one most played deck. It was, but I thought it wouldn't be by much. I thought it would be around, you know, 15, 16, 17%, which it kind of was. But then I expected Prism to maybe be 14, 15%, um, Fire to be 12%, and Briar to be around 10%. It's a bit more Briar than I thought. Um, and I guess, you know, things like Dash, Dorinthia, uh, making up some of that Bolton even, like, you know, there's some of these things that made up a bit more of the aggressive tail was maybe a bit longer than I thought as well. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting. This Oldham 1.6% is actually, Oldham being one of the least represented heroes, by the way, um, pretty much on Parth Levia. Pretty surprising. I don't think that Oldham is, like, a star in this format, but that is, like, 
I don't know. I feel like Oldham is a very good hero. It attacks some of these aggressive decks. Like it has a game mm. plan for it. Players are have an affinity towards this deck. Um, maybe not in that region, right? Which I think might be representative of this percentage. Do you think? I just want to quickly point this out as we kind of extrapolate this into Pro Tour two sort of uh, predictions. But do you think that Oldham one point six percent is going to maintain? Do you think we're going to see more? Because I know as we're preparing for Pro Tour two, like. We had old him in mind. Like we spent time yeah. trying to figure out this matchup, but now that I'm looking at it, it's like, what are we doing? What, what right? are we doing? <laughs> Much. So I was really surprised. I think so. That's that's um, three old players. I think is what it was in the whole field. One of them was Nick Butcher from Australia, who oh. people would know. Uh, I think his only losses were to illusionists. He got a little bit, you know, the, the gem format, you know, mm -hmm. paired into to illusionists. So more than you'd expect based on the sixteen percent of illusionists, but. Um, yeah, I was super surprised. I mean, I, like I said, I, like you said, I saw more Levy than I saw Oldham. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, crazy. There were two Levy at the top tables doing well. So it's it's super interesting to see that. I think we're going to see more. I can't see how we don't. I think the, the, the problem with taking a deck like Oldham into a really wide open meta, I think, is that um, you don't know what tools to play. Oldham, I think, has had a really tough spot in this meta because I think you need to be really, even, even against aggro and decks like Viscerai and Briar, it's not necessarily an easy matchup. You know, I think you have to have the right tools for those matchups. And then if you're also trying to take against people bringing Icelander and then people bringing, you know, maybe Fire is a different, like the way Fire and Runeblades play is not the same. So you have to have different tools. And then all of a sudden now you've got to start to think about um, Icelander coming in. You've got to think about maybe the Bravo matchup as well. And, and of course, Prism and Dramai. So I think maybe it's just a really tough pick this weekend. Uh, but in a more narrow field, I expect to see more Alton. But then Bravo was only 8%, which really surprised me. I actually thought... Bravo, and I, I kind of admitted this before when we were talking, I just forgot. I actually thought Bravo would probably be the third most played deck this uh, this past weekend in Singapore. So I, I guess in my head, maybe if I just remove percentages because that could skew things, but I thought it was going to be like Viscerai, Prism, Bravo, top three yeah. decks, and it, it, it was not. It was yeah. three aggro decks. Looking at this breakdown, I mean, I think Kano would have actually been a pretty decent deck to play at this tournament, which is which is pretty funny. Um, some of these Guardians and as well as Illusionists have made me uh, less confident about that hero coming into Pro Tour 2, but surprising data. Let's talk about, let's just jump into it before we forget. Let's talk about draft, like or in, in the hybrid format at that. How did you feel about it? Do you feel like it helped you prepare for Pro Tour 2? And what are some takeaways of playing this format, you know, before before the Pro Tour, right? You got a little little test run. Exactly that. This is, that was a, <clears throat> Singapore was a great warm-up, basically, you know, in terms of, did not get the results I wanted? Um, also, probably was treating it a bit more like a an on the way to France. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I'm going to be playing a different deck this weekend. Not that I had planned to. It's just the way that testing's gone this week is that I won't be playing um, the deck that I played in, in Singapore. So that's not that crazy. In terms of the split format, I really like it. So I got to play it at Nationals. That was the first kind of uh, flesh and blood experience of a split format. I really enjoy the split format. Starting with draft, I think it's great as well because you you, just, you can leave constructed till afterwards you get straight in with the draft, which I yeah. like um so i enjoyed that format it's tough though like you know if you if you feel that you've got a constructed deck that needs to dodge matchups then all of a sudden it's like i can't really drop more than one game in draft yeah and that's tough in a limited format like limited format as much as i will you know i'll stand there and say how much i love limited formats and how skill intensive they are there's still variants right you know i i lose the die roll and the fire mirror and i don't draw a great hand i you know i brick all reds in my icelander on one turn and i only have 18 life to start you know there's all these things that that can happen in variants and there's variants in like class constructed there's variants of blitz etc but you know it just ends up being like okay you know i, I chose to play ultim this weekend let's say you know i didn't i played this right but let's say i did choose to play ultim i run into two illusionists and then in draft you know i just 
maybe my, my second draft doesn't go that well. I only have a 2-1 deck. And all of a sudden, I'm like on the bubble, maybe not even in top eight, you know, like just from those three losses. So um, the split point can be super punishing, but I also think it's like super rewarding for players who have put in the preparation across both uh, both events. Mm-hmm. What Did you learn anything specifically from the draft portion of Singapore? Did you have some, some ideas about the format that were changed in a high-level professional setting? Um, I think it was more solidifying some of the ideas I had around the format. So uh, I, I like Icelander. Uh, Icelander is, is still good, I think. Um, I had a conversation with some players on Saturday after draft one about some cards in fire. And in draft two, I drafted fire. And I drafted some cards I probably wouldn't usually draft just based on some of the things that people had said about cards they liked. I probably let some influences come in from the outside. And I ended up with a draft deck that I wasn't happy with, a fire deck that I wouldn't traditionally draft. And I think that solidified my sort of ideas around fire and how I want to build that kind of deck to be just as consistent as possible and not worry about some of the cards that are a bit more uh, high ceiling but low floor. Um, if I can avoid them, you know, pass them on, ship them down. I'm thinking about cards like Flameful Awakening. I don't particularly love that card. Um, so it just probably helped me solidify some thoughts. Um, I, what I did learn, big learning though, is that, and I've said this before, I think on the pod, is that um, drafts have metas. You know, like people will react. So let's say the kind of narrative is being forced fire. So then all of a sudden, you know, you've got four players. You, you know, you're basically guaranteeing in a lot of pods you're going to have four fire players. Well, where do you want to position yourself now? Do you want to position yourself as like the fourth fire or do you want to go after one of those other heroes and try and be in a two? There's a, there's a meta that evolved. I think I saw that over the weekend. You know, my, my first pod was really different to my second pod. And I had in my pod one, I had a lot of local players from Singapore and Asia. And then in my, my second pod, I had a lot of players. I, had, I think I had three Australians in my pod. In, in, in day two and it felt like a very different draft mm-hmm. you know there's metas within not just regionally but also the meta actually develops through the day um and i got to talk to some of the players in my pod about that and kind of how they drafted and how they approached and they kind of said some of the things you know the, the the patterns of what they saw day one weren't necessarily the patterns of what they saw day two so cards that they saw maybe go around later in in uh day one on the draft weren't going around as late in day two you know people were prioritizing differently because they like to build their decks differently um, I think of an example, right? So uh, the fire draft in day one. So I, sorry, I drafted Icelander, but I, you know, the, the fire drafters, they were really prioritizing like chain enders, you know, so cards mm. like Rise Up and even like Searing Touch, people were like putting, you know, wanting to have in their deck, wow. you know? So whereas a card like Searing Touch, I would think is like a, you know, in the bottom sort of four or five picks of a draft, whereas people were taking that maybe mid pack and they were taking cards like Rise Up, like first pick, which is not something I would traditionally maybe expect to see. Um, and then that maybe kind of shifted on day two to where I saw, you know, rise ups come later and things like that. So just probably really goes back to that idea. And, and I saw it in practice. I've always thought that there's a, um, a draft meta, but I saw it in practice of two days and I saw it evolve over the two days, which was, was awesome. Yeah. It's so hard to predict, um, the draft before you go into the draft, uh, no matter how strong the narrative is. Cause like this has happened a lot in Tales of Varia, this idea of like, you know, forcing Briar or old and fatigue. There's a lot of archetypes back there. And you would just have these really paradoxical draft pods where, you know, you'd either have five or six Briar, or sometimes you would have zero. And it's just like, cause everybody's like, oh, everybody's gonna force Briar. I'm not gonna go into it. I'm gonna stick to this. Uh, maybe Olden Fatigue is like, it's silver bullet. And then they all go into that. And we see similar, kind of similar narratives here in Uprising around a class like five. Like a lot of people think, oh, you just need a very average five deck to be successful. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But everybody, wants, I think that a lot of people are comfortable being the third five. No one really wants to be the fourth. And mm. if, it, if there's a fifth, they're like nobody wants. Yeah, to what be happened there? there. <clears throat> yeah, someone's in a one, right? 
yeah exactly like someone's in a one yeah nobody yeah. want nobody wants to be there um so you see people overly avoid it and sometimes those heroes are underdrafted in some pods uh and that's is actually made before the cards are even opened yeah and that's why i think it's like this um this draft format more than even like tails and stuff because of the the draconic and the like not having the three talents to stay open as long and the 14 card packs is that i think People this weekend are going to have to back what they know. So we're going to Pro Tour this weekend. And a big kind of takeaway for me is that actually people have to back what they know about this format and take their assumptions, take the things they've learned and really double down on those. Because if you're kind of wishy-washy on some stuff and you try and say, well, I'm going to go in and, and adapt to what my pod does. You don't have enough picks to do that in this format with 14 cards in a pack. But also, I think what's going to end up happening is you're just going to end up with decks that you wouldn't usually want to play or you're not going to dictate the draft. You're going to be dictated to in the draft. I don't think that's where you want to be an uprising um so i think you're going to see the players who really succeed this weekend really go after what they know and um and, and some, for some that will be saying open right for some that will be yeah i know until pick x <clears throat> i know i want to do xyz to stay at least semi-open and that's cool they commit to that right and that's what they do but i don't think you'll see people have success by sort of changing their draft strategy this weekend adapting to things they maybe have learned in the last few days and, and trying to go after that i think what you'll see is people who have really uh committed to understanding the uprising draft format uh, gone after it and have particular strategies in mind of how they want to draft and what they want to draft and when they need to change picks or, or abandon picks <clears throat> do well this weekend in Lille. I think it's really like one of the most important things approaching the draft format in Lille is to <laughs> be able, uh, be comfortable and be able to draft every class. I think the worst place you can be in is just being like, okay, I just, I'm not going to draft Jermai. No matter what comes around to me. And I know Jermai is the one I pick because there's a lot of sentiment around sort of these middling Jermai decks that tend to O3. Um, and I think people avoid that hero because of that. But I remember, I mean, we did a draft the other day and I passed Michael Hamilton, one of the best Jermai decks I've ever seen. He 3 would right? So easy 3 yeah. as well, to be honest. It's, it's wow. a, you got to have that in your toolbox. Um, and I think that I, it'd be a really scary spot to approach a draft pod and just be like, I'm not drafting. I've got two choices here because you know you get three you get three Icelanders and four fives and there's one Jermai that Jermai is going to be doing very well. Um, so let's head into the construction portion of the calling. Right. So we said it was a more aggressive meta. How did you feel about your individual matches and opponents? Yeah. So first of all, what I've what I really want to say, and I think to be honest, the results show this when you have eight players from Asia in the top eight. Uh, the players from Asia were really good, <laughs> some really good players. And uh, I played against, you know, some really strong opponents. Uh, none of my opponents were sort of phoning it in. They were all there to play and to win, which was awesome to see. So um, my constructed rounds, so six rounds of constructed, played Viserai, played the little Viserai. Um, I felt really good about my constructed rounds. So I lost to Viserai Mirror. Um, I learned to actually learn a ton from that game. I think I set up incorrectly for the game. I think I sort of... Uh, I played against a good player, um, Melvin, playing Viserai. He's a, a Singaporean local. And I thought that he was probably going to play differently. I thought he was going to play a bit a bit more greedy uh, than he did. And he just played really tight, set up really well. Um, I chose the wrong decision after winning the dice roll, and he just punished me for it. Uh, but I still felt good about <clears throat> sort of the, the rounds. And then my my other loss was uh, I lost to Osikano. Mm. Um, in the very last round of the event, I lost to uh, Fahad from Melbourne, uh, who's a very good Kano player. Uh, we had a pretty funny game actually he um he just kind of like his last round you know we're both i don't think either of us can cash at this point i think we're if either of us will be in like 33rd or 34th and miss cash and he just kind of like oh, i think i've lost this goes through the motions then just finds like a chain lining like tone kill off the top to like just just destroy me mm -hmm. on the final turn of the game um 
but yeah, I, I played against a lot of aggressive decks. I played against Akatsu, uh, for instance. Uh, I played against one Prism outside of that. I played uh, two Mirrors, I think, and um, then, then the Kano as well. It, it was a really interesting sort of constructive portion in terms of, I guess, the what I, you know, what I said before. Expecting these aggressive decks, didn't see Guardian, didn't play a Guardian, um, and Prism was probably, you know, I didn't, didn't play a Briar, didn't play a Fire, for instance. So, you know, I, I had a bit of a mixed bag in terms of what I played against. Um, but I think you have to expect that in, in open events, and that's part of the reason I played Viserai last weekend is I thought the event was going to be open, even though I thought it was going to be Viserai, Bravo, Prism, the top three decks. I still thought, you know, they would be no more than maybe 15, 16% mm-hmm. any one of them, and probably around like 12 to 15 max. Yeah, so let's talk about the Viserai <laughs> pick because it was the most represented deck, but also didn't convert super well into top eight, may have converted well into day two. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel about Viserai going into that format? Was it sort of the equalizer, the drag of all trades, just the the safe pick? And why do you think that it didn't end up converting into the top eight where, you know, we'll talk about it's, uh, you know, it's relative over here, Briar, that seemed to do very well. Yeah, Mr. Reliable is what I call Viserai, I think, in an overmental like this. Um, I think it's probably worth noting just what the top eight decks were just before mm-hmm. I start talking about this as well. So we ended up with four Briar in top eight. Yep. Yeah, four Briar, Icelander, Dash, Fi. I thought there was one Prism, but maybe not. No, no Prism. No, no Prism. prism. Um, so I'm just trying to go back through that. Yeah, four, and then a Fi, uh, a Dash, um, an Icelander. I'm sure we can find top eight here. Yeah, here we go. So Dash, Viserai. By Icelander for Briar. Yeah, yeah. Icelander, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I missed the Viserai. <laughs> no, I was saying, I thought the Icelander was a prism. Oh, yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, I guess in terms of what, what I played, I felt really good about the deck. I felt like it was the right call for the weekend. I wasn't surprised to see Viserai. Worth noting is there was quite a few Viserais in top 16 mm-hmm. as well. So, um, and then I guess why Briar did well this weekend. Um, I think Briar has the ability to just explode, right? In other aggro decks, against other aggro decks, it's also good into mostly an open field. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's hard to say when you have draft as like part of the portion as well. So I don't know the players in top eight, what the individual constructed records were. Mm-hmm. I know, I think the five player was like, I think he like won all but one of, I think he went five, one and constructed. Um, I don't really know about the Icelander player. I think he said he went four, two maybe in, in constructed, had a really good draft time. So. It is hard to say exactly, you know, are these top eight decks represented of a constructed format because there's six rounds of draft in there. So they're, they're obviously not, right? Yeah. Um, but what does that, what does the extent mean? I mean, I think obviously Briar was a was a good pick that weekend. I think Viserai was a good pick. Um, I think looking at it, I, I don't think Five was necessarily particularly a great pick. There wasn't as much prism to prey on as maybe you'd like. Uh, and the other reason I think Briar did well was just Guardian didn't show up. Yeah. That's, that's a big part of the conversion, I think, in the top eight. I want to quickly talk about just for context the top four of the battle hardened. Oh yeah, well. <laughs> so stark difference. So first we have Icelander. Second, eleven and zero Icelander. By the yeah, way. did not drop a game. Yeah, first Icelander, second Oldham, third Briar. You know, usual suspect, but fourth Lexi, and the rest was sort of, well, actually fifth Katsu, yeah. and then the rest Briars and Viserys. Yeah. So that is a very different top five than you you saw in the calling. Do you think that this is more representative of the constructed format than the calling top eight results are? I think they're pretty similar. I think you know, there's still no prism. Yeah, still <laughs> 16, 16 decks into top eight, and this yeah. is full constructed battle harden, right? No draft in this battle harden, yeah, yeah, yeah. no prism. That really surprises me. Like as much as you know, the narrative I think right now, and I think you've said it. Uh, I've still been kind of positive on the power of prism, but the narrative I think has been how can you take prism into a meta where you're 40 percent aggro right now? And I guess that's kind of showing in the results, right? Like that is what what we're seeing. So 
Um, all that being said, I expect to see Brisbane this weekend. <laughs> Definitely. So, yeah, I guess in terms of the the top shit, is this more representative of maybe what we see in, in Lille? Um, I don't expect to see Katsu, so maybe not. Uh, would I expect to see an Oldham in top eight? I'd probably expect to see a Bravo, but maybe not an Oldham. So, um, no, but I think the kind of, if you say, okay, what's the narrative over the past two weeks? Agro meta shift, yeah. Like mm-hmm. two weeks ago, it was like, Bravo was, you know, Bravo and Viscera were maybe like the decks everyone was talking about. And then it was like, actually, Prism's still really powerful. And then it's like, we just came out of Singapore and, you know, six out of what? It was, it was an aggro top eight. Apart from Icelander, every deck in that top eight was an aggro deck. Yeah, definitely. And let, like, let's just go into that. How do you expect this to change? Well, how exactly do you expect this to change for Pro Tour number two? Because it's also a different region, right? And I think there is some regional influence here with the old Huge. at 1.6%. So going into the Pro Tour, everybody has this data. They have the results. Um, I expect Viscerai to wane. I expect less Viscerai. Uh, I still think it'll be a very popular deck, but I do think that the most popular deck will probably be Briar. Puts four in top eight. It's not. It wouldn't be very surprising. I think that Briar is a deck that people call back to nowadays. It's sort of a staple, um, and it's usually quite powerful. So I feel like a lot of Viscerai players have Briar in their, in their cabinet, right? able to pull it out so after seeing result the results that it had whether they are you know good results to use to pick a deck for pt2 or not i think we're going to see more briar i think we're going to see less viscerai i don't know about bravo but uh, prism you would expect to see less but historically if we look at any tournament that's ever existed in flesh and blood prism shows up in force in, in the northern hemisphere yeah this is the yeah. lowest prism groups attached to the southern hemisphere right so yeah and then obviously more old him. Old him got second place at uh, Battle the Battle Harden. So it, it's definitely a deck, right? It's deck. It's a deck that warrants more than one point six percent, probably. Yeah. So I don't dis- I don't actually agree. I think Viscera is going to be the most played deck still, and I don't think it's going to be too dissimilar to what we saw. In- I, what the cool thing is, I don't think we're going to see a deck be more than twenty percent of the meta this weekend, mm. uh, which you know was never a possibility. Two decks more than twenty percent of the meta, <laughs> in, yeah. in, uh, in New Jersey, and Prism wasn't far off. It was twenty percent on day two. So. Uh, I expect Viscerai to be the most played deck. I think Briar might climb a popularity a little bit. Yeah, I agree after that performance. Um, but I also think people are locked into decks. I think people understand that there's some regionality to this meta. The Singapore uh, meta, very aggressive. Like That's what I was told, and that's what we kind of saw. Uh, the meta in Northern Hemisphere, and particularly in Europe, traditionally love controlling decks, like sort of combo-style decks. Um, so I expect us to see you know, more Guardian, definitely. But also, you know, probably to see a bit more prism. So, if I was to say, where does the share come out of? I think probably five to seven percent, maybe ten percent aggro drop, and we start to see a bit of a balance out of people trying to prey on some aggro decks, and then people trying to prey on the decks of prey on the aggro decks, right? Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's how you try and win an event, right? Is you make sure you have the deck to beat the deck. You know what I just realized? Being in Northern Europe here, we're in the uh, the arena of Bolton, Bolton combo. This is this is a stomping ground. Now, if you remember Road to Nationals, but. Sir Bolton with his sabers won a lot of those tournaments, and these boys love Bolton. Uh, I'm just kidding. I don't know how Bol- about Bolton is going to do, but you did mention that you know combo was quite popular here. So do you know, do you know what it is? I think the reason combo is popular here. I don't know why controls popular here, but I think the reason combo is popular here is that you get through your game. <laughs> you get through your game quickly, and you get to stand up and not continue to sweat in the seat that you just sat in. So. Over yeah. under on there being air conditioning at the venue this weekend? Uh, I'll take the under because there's been air conditioning nowhere. <laughs> exactly zero. No, I went to a, a, a bar last night that had air conditioning. 33 that... degrees just wasn't on. <laughs> no, it just wasn't. <laughs> oh my God. So let's just head in. Let's, let, let's extrapolate, right? Let's talk about Pro Tour number two. How have you been preparing and what is your general sentiment? How are you feeling? 
yeah i mean i feel i feel good it's interesting it's a i it initially felt like a real stark contrast to pt1 where so i guess the story of my pt1 is that i worked for ages on a particular deck kind of flip-flopped on a few things and then ultimately made a really late audible change to a deck that you know between you and yourself and sasha felt really attacked the format and i agree uh this time has been very different. I felt there was much less ways to break the meta, right? There was much less ways. The, the, the meta's wider. I don't think there is a way, to be honest, after well, all. Yeah. Now, yeah. <laughs> but the, the meta is a lot is a lot more diverse. Yeah. You know, look at the top 10, the top 16 uh, players after day one in Singapore, 10 heroes represented. You know, you look at no more than 17% in Singapore of one single hero. Like, the, the meta is much more open than it has been ever before in Flesh and Blood, which is... It's crazy so it's a lot harder it's a very different preparation this time you know i think uh i felt really comfortable on a, you know a deck for a very long time i played viscerai at singapore because it's just like a comfort pick for me but i've played a lot of stuff in testing so far this this season um i think you need to i think you need to be across a few decks uh because the meta's been shifting and changing so yeah in terms of the preparation itself um a lot of work's gone in the last three days which you can attest to uh to sort of select the deck uh we neither of us none of us were locked coming to went to Lille. literally uh, opposite <laughs> i think we had three or four decks kind of that we were considering so this was definitely one for me prism is definitely one uh briar and and guardian yeah, yeah, yeah. well kind of for you i have bravo in the backpack so um definitely like there was a multitude of, of heroes i was considering but there was nothing really like too fringe or out there that was ever in consideration which is i was kind of sad about it. <laughs> honestly yeah. i i flew over to lil with i didn't fly with a deck i flew with cards in my bag yeah that's right. yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. uh we really didn't have a deck um and that's what we spent the last kind of 48 hours doing i think you know unfortunately there isn't i don't know if there's a way to break like completely break the meta especially from a combo perspective um i think you can get edge but gone are the days um I mean, those kind of combo decks that do really well into these established formats where it's very predictable, there's yep. this bully, and everybody kind of has a blind eye to the rest of the kind of a lot of the tools that are available because they're so hyper focused on this oppressive deck that is sort of reigning supreme in the meta. Yeah, Viserai and, you know, the sort of end of the Briar Lightning era, the. Mm uh the kano deck last time you know like Bravo. yeah 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 with, with the meters where they've been a lot narrower it's a lot easier to mitigate these we, the, the conversation we've had this week right as we're preparing for pro to allele we try and break down what we think the meta is going to be but ultimately you know 50 percent of the meta alone could come from you know the top 50 percent of the meta could come from four to five decks I, that i expect it to <laughs> which is so hard to prepare for last time the top 50 percent of the meta came from two decks yeah two decks much easier to prepare for Yep, hundred percent. And we also have to. You, I don't know how we would. We we actually. Well, you you can incorporate this sort of dual format draft and constructed into your deck choice. It's hard to pick a yes. deck that has these really bad matchups, right? Like it's hard. To, it's hard to justify something like Prism, especially in the context you know there's going to be a lot of aggro running around. But you take Prism, like you might have like literal buys into some of these Guardian players, but you could have a really tough time getting paired into fives. Yeah, so I think you've got to, you've got two decisions to make. The first thing is to understand what you think the meta is going to be, and then try and make a, a just a constructed pick based off that. Can I just pick a deck that's going to eight no constructed? That's what we're playing this weekend, eight rounds constructed, or a seven one. And then the next piece is okay, how good do I feel about the draft format? What do I what do I expect? Like, what's a, a satisfactory record for me, or the record I need to achieve to to feel like I can win this event? Is it four two? Is it five one? If it's four two, all of a sudden I can only drop one run round and constructed. 
max two. It's it's one round really, maybe the last round of Swiss, but it's it's one round of constructed. So playing a deck that loses to maybe thirty percent of the meta or has a you know bad matchup into 40 percent of the meta, kind of off the table, I think. So you know, but the flip side, maybe if you're really good about draft, you think in five one six oh the draft pretty easily, and you want to play a deck for top eight. You know, you want to play the just the strongest deck, just as you know, maybe it has some bad matchups, but it's just the most powerful thing you can play. Well, then you can justify that. So I think you kind of look at it in two different two different ways and you assess it on two different criteria at least and make a pick based on that and i think to a degree i think that's what we've done uh but also we just tried to what's the best deck yeah it's so wide open it's really funny you say that you're talking about you know if you if you think you can 6-0 the draft format it's just a little anecdote but i actually haven't met anybody who came to me with that sense of it where like in tales of aria i would go into giraffes where i, I felt like i could consistently 3-0 them mm. and in same. Two one at worst, right? Yeah. But I feel most of the people I talk to, and these are these are your, some of your top thought leaders in this format, right? Like your your Michael Fangs and Yon G's, and you know all these people that have recently kind of been talking a lot about this format. Like they'll come in, they're like, I'm trying to two, like it would be great to two one three zero. That's that's amazing, but I don't, I haven't really met anybody who's just like, yep, the draft format is my edge. I am three owing all of them, and then I can take my losses and construct it. I, I haven't heard any of that. No, no. I mean, I three three draft in Singapore. Yeah. Uh, I felt like I probably could have four twoed uh, potentially, but even then, like four, that's not a great record. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I uh, two on my first draft with one of the best Icelander decks I've ever had. <laughs> like, so it's it's tough. And I mean, I hope Michael doesn't mind me saying this. Uh, you know, I got to spend some time with Michael at the venue. Over the weekend, Michael Feng, who I have a lot of respect for, obviously the Tactical um, uh, 20 podcast, they do a great job. He went 2-4 in draft. Mm. You know, I think he XO constructed, <laughs> but 2-4 in draft. And that's not a side against Michael. I think he's a phenomenal player and has a, a really great insight of the limited format. Just wasn't his day on, on limited, you know. And um, I look on the flip side of that, our uh, friend of the show, Jay Long, Jason Long, mm -hmm. you know, four-time top eight calling competitor, 6-0 draft. Did, so, he, did he top eight? He didn't top That's eight. That's the first time, right? I know. <laughs> six zero draft. I think it's his second calling top eight he's missed. But uh, yeah, six zero draft. Uh, so I think he had a really he felt really positive about draft, but he also felt really positive about his constructed deck size. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Um, so kind of, in, do you have any parting thoughts as we head into the pro tour tomorrow? Just like how are you feeling? What do you think? Like any general takeaways as we sort of close out? Yeah, I just want to share. I guess one last kind of little tidbit is that this this week has been the pro tour for me like when it, for me once you get to sit down at round one for the weekend the work's done yeah like honestly like yeah. <laughs> i'm i'm there to play hard but enjoy myself have a great time try and win the event but ultimately all the work has already happened the testing has happened i can't change my deck at that point i can't change my draft strategy really at that point unless i panic and go and talk to someone for the drafts and get a download of something that ultimately probably for me is not even going to work anyway so mm. To be honest, uh, by the time we get to sort of go to bed tonight, get up in the morning to the venue, I'm going to feel a lot more relaxed. And um, that is kind of how it works with testing, I think. At least that's been our experience so far. It was the same for New Jersey. All the work happened before, and then you get to the event. And um, it's kind of, it sounds weird, like, to say it's all downhill from there because you've still got, you've got to battle through hard. But the that's the enjoyable part. Like, not that testing is enjoyable. Like, I get to play a big event and just be in the moment and... Everything yeah. I've learned is already there. You know, I'm, I'm trying to just play the game, play my best, and, and have an awesome time. Weirdly enough, I would say that the actual tournament is the relaxing part. Because <laughs> I feel like the testing and stuff, it's a lot of cramming, it's a lot of tests, it's a lot of stressing. Mental like, strain. Yeah, it's yeah. It, like you're really trying to get something done in a time span that is probably too short. And I feel like once you get 
once you lock in, you're at that, there's nothing you can do. And everything is sort of deterministic at that point for how much you've tested. Um, obviously, there is like high stakes gameplay, there's being aware, there's making good plays, playing tight. But I mean, that stuff just pales in comparison to those, you know, two, three, four days leading up to the tournament where you're just like, I mean, we, like I said, we flew over to Blue with just cards in the bag. There was no deck. And that's, that was definitely a bit stressful. But I think in this sort of meta, there was nothing else we could have done. Like, I think that that was the best strategy was to sort of figure out a way to react to Singapore um, and just work off of that. Because I didn't see, I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't have uh, my sort of religious experience with Kano again. <laughs> I think when you say work off the back of Singapore, it's not like we just looked at Singapore and said, this is what the meta is going to be. Let's adapt from there. Mm. But it, Singapore results help a lot. And in terms of, you know, this idea of, I want to point out that probably not the common thing to do to rock up with cards in a bag and work out a deck, you know, the day yeah. before, two days before the pro tour. And it's not like we just started testing. We've been testing a lot over mm. the past few weeks. And what we've been learning is, you know, what are certain archetypes do? What are certain groups of cards do? How can we build a deck? What is the middle? Understand the meta, understand the, the key players. That's what we've been doing. So when we come to this kind of standpoint where all three of us sit around a table for three days straight, basically, what we're doing is trying to decipher that. We don't have to play actually, you know, a million testing games. We're actually just working on iterations of things that we already know about um, and going from there. So it's not, yeah, I just want to point out that it's not like we've come and gone, oh, let's just build a deck from scratch with no learnings. Like we have so much in the in the in the pipeline already it's just trying to adapt now that it's much easier when you sat around a table altogether you know we've just had discussions about certain cards strategies for the past three days um and you know after this pod wraps up thursday morning here we're gonna go write up our game plans play the last few sort of games to, to get reps in and and that's it we're done we're ready to to play the event this weekend um all done and dusted so look uh, overall i feel really good um i feel as good as i can for draft I feel like we've got the the right deck for Class Constructed that we kind of literally, time of recording, we wrapped up like 12 hours ago, you know. I mean, the, the, the list isn't even solidified. We've got to finish that today, but um, feel feel pretty Imagine good. Imagine having a solidified list 12 hours. Like, <laughs> <I like it. laughs> but that's how we like to roll. That's what we uh, that's what we found has worked for us. So um, we'll see. Maybe we have to change the approach next time. To be honest, maybe the meta's a, lot, meta's a lot more targetable next time and we don't have to take this project. Yeah, it won't be won't necessarily be the same next time. It wasn't a very targetable meta, that's it. Like that's what it came down to is like, I don't think this, yeah, it, like you're used to having two to three top decks. Um, this one, you see a lot of representation. It was hard to target and I'm, I'm not disappointed with the process this time um, at all. It was it was just a bit stressful. That's it. But I feel like we ended up on a really good deck. I'm very confident. Um, and that's really all you can ask for, right? Like if this is the method that it took to be to be successful, that's fine. Because I I much prefer this than walking up and feeling like I'm just playing some deck, right? Like that I just like pulled off the internet or like, you know, something like that. So I, I'm happy with it. Yeah, I, I think you've got to, my big takeaway from the, the, the first two Pro Tours, and obviously we haven't played PT2 yet, but just even preparing for it is that taking something off the rack is um, is going to be very difficult. Everyone knows what you're what you're doing. You have game plans that, because people have tested into it, you're probably at best realistically like 60%, unless it's like a, a matchup that's super polarizing. And, and honestly, it's more like 50-50, 55%, and you're not really giving yourself the edge that you need to to win these events, I think. Um, I think, you know, you look at Pablo winning with Chain, like his list wasn't an off the rack list, right? Like he put a lot of work into that and cho chose really carefully the cards he played in that in that format to make sure he could get the best out of that top eight, to be honest. Mm -hmm. You saw two Kano decks in the top, you know, there's all these different things. So yeah, let's go play a pro tour though. Uh, before we wrap up and sign off, I guess what we're gonna say is no review 
Google review this week. Mm. Uh, me and is sitting here <laughs> across from the laptop. But if you do want to get your Google review and you can, <laughs> if you want to get your Google review and you can, um, go and uh, rate podcast.com forward slash Arsenal Pass. It'll take you to your preferred listening platform and you can give us a review. It really helps us out. Nice uh, five star review and a cheeky, funny review for Brendan. He'll love it. And uh, yeah, Brendan, anything else to say before we sign off? Nope, that's it. Um, this one, I think we're going to go up on time. Um, Hopefully. You know, yeah, I think so. On time this uh, this time around. Too many times. Um, but yeah, I just want to mention as well, we talk about our janky setup. We're sitting here in, you're right, like a 30 Celsius apartment cooking. with a with a Yeti mic sitting in a cup once again. That cup has been really reliable, to be honest, on, on my laptop. Um, but yeah, signing off, uh, Hayden and I are on Twitter. Hayden is at Fian underscore Dale on that Brendan APG. Um, check out the Arsenal Pass YouTube channel. We're going to have a bunch of content coming that way after the Pro Tour. Got some deck text, deck guides. And, you know, coming into Worlds, we've got a lot of formats to prepare for, which means a lot of content. Mm-hmm. Got some of those Blitz deck texts. We're talking about the best deck in the world, Kano Blitz. Uh, anyway, <laughs> thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. See you later.